0: And last week we read the story about Balaam, who was the greedy prophet. He is known throughout the rest of scripture, especially the New Testament. Peter and Jude and even Jesus himself will compare false teachers who were greedy for money, will compare them to Balaam because that's what he wanted. And so we saw that the king of Moab, whose name was Balak, we've been calling him Balak, uh, how he has been intimidated by the children of Israel who have come out of the wilderness And have conquered the two strongest neighbors he has. And now they're camped right next to him on land that once upon a time was Moabite land. So he calls for Balaam to come and curse the people. And we saw that the Lord was speaking to Balaam and was not entirely pleased with the attitude in which he was going. And the angel of the Lord came to warn him and and even to kill him three times. And while Balaam did not see the angel of the Lord, his donkey did. And we, we had a good laugh at Balaam's expense, as you're supposed to. At this wise and all-seeing prophet isn't able to see the angel right in front of his face, but his donkey can. And that story is going to be echoed in these three chapters here today. But this week, we're going to look at the actual prophecies, the oracles that we'll call them. Uh, An oracle refers to something that's been seen and then delivered. It's a biblical word, although it can carry some pagan overtones. It shouldn't when we're talking about true prophecy. But he's going to declare blessings for Israel. You know the story, and Balak's not going to be happy about that. And he's also going to give a very important messianic prophecy, one of the earliest prophecies of the coming Messiah from the children of Israel. And there's going to be four oracles that he gives to the children of Israel. And then there's going to be three more that he gives that are aimed at the nations that surround them. And each one of us tonight is going to have an opportunity to meditate on what it means to be blessed by God, and also what it takes to be blessed by God. That's something that we all want. We all want to receive the blessings of the Lord. There are some people that come to church, and that's exactly what they want. We want to get our blessing. I heard a lot of people say that. I'm coming to get my blessing this week, and usually the implication is, yeah, I'm not doing much other than that, but at least I come in to you know, get some energy for the week. But blessing in Scripture is not only a real thing, it's an important thing. And ultimately, we will see that it is Israel's connection to God that guarantees their blessings. And ultimately, it's the Son of God who guarantees their blessings into the future. And we're going to talk about that briefly, that as Romans 11 tells us, that the calling and the gifts of God specifically in context related to the children of Israel, are without repentance. They're irrevocable. God is not finished with the children of Israel. We've talked about this at great length, and the words of Balaam, which are the words of the Lord spoken through Balaam, will emphasize that for us tonight. But also, that if you are in Christ Jesus, the same is true for you. Because the one who will bring about the completion of the blessings promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob will also bring about those same blessings to those who are in Christ which was always a part of what God said to Abraham. And I think we ought to learn tonight, blessing from God is not a system to exploit. You ever been in one of those places where somebody knew how to get two bars of candy out of the, out of the vending machine if you hit it just right? Or something like that? No, it's not going to work like that with God. There's nothing, well, I won't say nothing. There are a few things that God despises more than being used by somebody. Somebody's trying to make use of God for their own ends, which is what Balak is trying to do, and it's going to come back right in his face. Blessing is not a system to exploit. It is the result of a life surrendered to the lordship of the morning star of Israel, and that's Jesus Christ. So we're going to do this in fairly large sections tonight. Let's read the first 12 verses of Numbers chapter 23. And Balaam said to Balak... Last time I'll do that. Build for me here seven altars and prepare for me here seven bulls and seven rams. Balak did as Balaam had said, and Balak and Balaam offered on each altar a bull and a ram. And Balaam said to Balak, stand beside your burnt offering and I will go. Perhaps the Lord will come to meet me, and whatever he shows me, I will tell you. And he went to a bare height, and God met Balaam. And Balaam said to him, I have arranged the seven altars, and I have offered on each altar a bull and a ram. And the Lord put a word in Balaam's mouth and said, Return to Balak, and thus you shall speak. And he returned to him, and behold, he and all the princes of Moab were standing beside his burnt offering. And Balaam took up his discourse, his oracle would be another way to translate that, and said, From Aram, Balak has brought me, the king of Moab from the eastern mountains, Come, curse Jacob for me, and come, denounce Israel. How can I curse whom God has not cursed? How can I denounce whom the Lord has not denounced? For from the top of the crags I see him, from the hills I behold him. Behold, a people dwelling alone, and not counting itself among the nations. Who can count the dust of Jacob, or number the fourth part of Israel? Let me die the death of the upright, and let my end be like his." And Balak said to Balaam, what have you done to me? I took you to curse my enemies, and behold, you've done nothing but bless them. And he answered and said, must I not take care to speak what the Lord puts in my mouth? So Balaam has Balak sacrifice seven bulls and seven rams. Seven was an important number in these times, and it's also an important number in the Bible as well, so it should be an important number to us. And the reason for these sacrifices was probably first to invoke the deity. This seems to be his routine. Remember, Balaam is not a true prophet of God as we think of it, but he was a, he was a polytheist. He was a magician, and he w- had systems for communicating with whatever jo- god he was dealing with at the time. And so they, they do these seven sacrifices, try to get God's attention. And also probably for divination purposes. What they would do is they would take the liver, they would take the organs of the animals out, and they would read them for signs. If you've read the Aeneid, if you read Jason and the Golden Fleece, the Odyssey, it talks an awful lot about this, that they would read the liver, they would read the kidneys uh, to see what, what signs they would, they would glean from them. I'm, I'm not familiar with the method, and that's, that's all right with me. But that's what they did. They are at a place called Bamot, Baal. We saw this in the last chapter. That word means, bamot means high places, and Baal is Baal, but you would have a little break in it. Baal is how you'd pronounce that. So he's on one of the high places. These are the high places that Josiah and the other good kings of Israel would later tear down, because they believed if you could get up onto a high mountain, then God could hear you better. And he says he went up to a bare height. If you are familiar uh, maybe you've seen Fantasia, but there is a a piece of music called The Night on Bald Mountain or The Night on Bear Mountain. And it's supposed to be a, a musical rendition of a what they call a witch's Sabbath because they were trying to bring back their old pagan culture musically for some reason. And they would go to these bald heights and they would have these pagan rituals. So that piece of music that you maybe remember from the Disney movie is Also, an extension of that tradition of going up onto the high places and invoking the gods. Now, of course, this is different because you're dealing with the living God here. And as we will see, this is going to be very different from anything Balaam has encountered before, as we've already seen when he saw the angel of the Lord about to take his head off. But while he's there, Yahweh, Jehovah God, gives him words to speak. And God had already told him twice in chapter 22. If you go, you better only say the words that I tell you. And so God, true to his word, gave him words to say. And it may be, depending on what translation you have, that verses 7 through 10 are divided into poetic verse. And that is absolutely right. If you read it and you're familiar with your Psalms, you can pick up on that parallelism there. Uh, it, It is in Hebrew. So the interesting question is, Uh, how did they get hold of this? How did they get hold of this prophecy? But we tend to think of the people in the Bible like cavemen, like how did they ever even talk to each other? This was a very sophisticated culture. I'm sure it was being written down. And they knew later on that Balaam had been hired against them. So I'm sure there were spies. I'm sure there were just communication between people. We're gonna see later, there's gonna be intercourse between the children of Israel and the daughters of Midian, which the Lord will not approve of, but it's very entirely possible and, and likely Certain, you might say, that they would get this. And if they were to translate it in, into Hebrew, well, that's, that's only appropriate. It's translated into English right there in front of you. So we don't have a problem with that. Uh, but it's very well organized into poetic form. So let's go through the different pieces of what he has here. First thing he does is he names himself and he describes the situation. He says, Balak has brought me, and Balak, the king of Moab from the eastern mountains, brought him from Aram. We talked about that. That's Syria to the north of Israel. Laban, if you remember, was from Padan Aram, which is a different part of Aram. If you read about somebody who's called an Aramean in the Bible, that is somebody from Syria. The language Aramaic is a reference to Syrian. There's another language called Syriac that is related to that. So that's where he is. He'd come and curse Jacob and Israel for me. You all know Jacob changed his name to Israel. So referring to them by both names is a very poetic way to describe it. And the second thing he does is he affirms, as he's already done, that he cannot go beyond God's word. He told them this in chapter 22, verse 18 and verse 38. He says, I'm only allowed to say what Jehovah tells me to say. And this maybe was unique for him because he seems to have a reputation for kind of doing whatever the people wanted. But the Lord revealed himself in a very real way to where he knew I better not cross this guy. So he says, how can I curse whom God has not cursed or denounce whom God has not denounced? And this is, it's going to give you both sides of it in the first two oracles. The first one is, God has not cursed Israel, therefore I have no power to curse Israel. That's important for us to know, isn't it? If God's got his hand on something, there's nothing anybody can do to stop it, right? Jesus said in Revelation, I've opened a door that no man can shut. When God speaks, that's it. And the third thing he does, so he says, This is what we're doing. I can't go beyond God's word. Therefore, the third thing, he's, he describes Israel in these beautiful, poetic, and beneficent terms. He's not saying, May such and such happen to you, as much as he is saying, Look at how wonderful you are. It's only going to continue, right? From the tops of the crags, I see him. A people dwelling alone, not counting itself among the nations. Who can count them? There's two main things that he talks about Israel here, and I'll give them to you quickly. The first one is that Israel is unique, Unique, a people dwelling alone and not counting itself among the nations. The word nations in Hebrew is goyim. It's also a Yiddish word. If you've had Jewish friends, maybe they've called you and your people as goyim before. Uh, That's what that means. Nations. It would be translated in the New Testament through the Greek Gentiles. And it would be rendered also in Greek ethne, which means like ethnic nations. So Like the other nations, they stand apart. And this is absolutely biblically true. God does not treat Israel like any other nation. Hosea chapter 11, in fact, when the Lord is outlined after 10 chapters, their horrible sin, he says, how can I treat you like, and he lists all these other nations that he's already judged and destroyed. How can I destroy you? I can't just do this to you like I do this to anybody else. In fact, in Ezekiel 25, God is going to judge Israel Edom and Moab, because he says, you treated Israel like any other nation. He says, I'm judging you because you treated my people like they were any other people. So when people want to say things, I've heard, you know, there are Christian theologians that believe this, but I want to be charitable when I come against it. But I, I absolutely do not agree when people will say, well, Israel is just one nation among many now. Well, the Lord has already made it very plain. I do not want you treating my people like any other people. And this is true in the New Testament also. Paul says in Romans 3, is there then no advantage to being a Jew? He says, of course not. They have tons of advantages. Romans 9 and 10 and 11, has God forsaken his people whom he foreknew? Of course not. They are unique. And number two, he says, they are innumerable. Who can count the dust? Who can number the fourth part of Israel? If your translation for fourth part has something like dust clouds, that is what's called an emendation, meaning people change the vowel pointing of the word in order to have it in parallel with verse 10. Uh, but it's, it's not heretical, but the actual verse says the fourth part. Like You can't even count a quarter of these people. So much for those folks that say, Israel wasn't that big at this point. Well, it impressed this guy anyway. And this is what God had promised to Abraham, that they would be innumerable. First thing, they were unique. The second, they are innumerable. The chosen people, God said in Genesis 22:17, 17, I will make your descendants, Abraham, like the stars in the sky and like the sand on the seashore. And this has never really, since the days of scripture, never really been in doubt. In fact, you can know that this has been fulfilled because you hear some of the horrible things that horrible people say about the Jews. They compare them to roaches or they compare them to a plague or an infection terrible thing to do but even by doing that you can see that God is fulfilling his promise to multiply his people like the sand and like the stars because every nation they're everywhere where are they all coming from that's the blessing of God that is still at work Hebrews 11 verse 12 says that through one man and him as good as dead talking about Abraham came a people as many as the sand of the seashore he describes, he's just saying, I mean, these are not the kind of things you want the guy you hired to curse somebody to say. There's no but coming. There's no, but here's what I say. The fourth thing he does, he, he doesn't even bless Israel. He asks for a blessing upon him like the blessing that is upon Israel. Let me die the death of the upright and let my end be like him. Rather than coming out and cursing them and not even blessing them, he, it's almost like when John the Baptist told Jesus, you should be baptizing me. Balaam's looking upon these people, and, and from the word of the Lord, he says, they're the ones that should be blessing me. The more you're like Israel, the more blessed you are, he says. Now, every one of us wants to be blessed like this. So briefly, before we move on to our study here, very often we get it backwards. We think, okay, I need to get a blessing. How do I get a blessing? How do I talk to God and get the things that I need from him? When in reality, what you ought to be doing is look at the ones that God is already blessing and say like Balaam, how can I be more like that? And You've got this whole example in scripture of what the kind of person God blesses is like and you ought to be bringing your life into or line with that. For example, people that want to come to God and say, God, bless me, bless me, and their life is a total, total mess. They, they, it's not things that have happened to them. It's things that they've done. They have no intention of quitting. They just want God to bail them out every once in a while. They do not consider that Jesus told us who is blessed. Matthew 5, you know these verses. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Do you remember that shirt that Nike put out a few years ago? I used to see it in Dick's Sporting Goods. On the front it would say, the meek shall inherit, dot, dot, dot. On the back it said, nothing like, you're going to hell, man. <laughs> Sorry. Maybe he repented. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus describes, you know, who, you know who's blessed? You, know, you think, who's God blessed? Well, rich folks, happy folks, you know, powerful folks. Jesus comes, you got it all backwards. He describes people who are humble and lowly, people who care about the most important things in life, like righteousness and, and desiring to be sons of God. And people who desire to pass those things on to others. People who are merciful, who are peacemakers. Even at their own expense, even if it means persecution for them. It is better to become the kind of man that God can bless than to try and work out something with God to bless you in your current sinful state. If that list that I just read doesn't describe you, poor in spirit, mourning, peacemaker... The good news is you can make the transition right now because the first step of that is poor in spirit. What does that mean? The person who recognizes I have nothing to offer God. There is no spiritual advantage that I possess. I am impoverished in spirit. I don't have anything that I can bring as credentials to my Lord. My righteousness is as filthy rags. Jesus says that person That's the person who has the kingdom of heaven. And the minute you do that and you recognize that and you start mourning over it, that's when the kingdom of heaven starts to come to you. Balaam expressed the right desire to become like the upright rather than try and work something out with God to bless his mess. And of course, Balak was furious. This is not what he paid for. And Balaam is forced to remind him of the terms of the deal. Hey, man, I'm not paying for this. He goes, I told you I couldn't say anything other than what Yahweh said. So, Balak has a, has a plan. Verse 13. Balak said to him, please come with me to another place from which you may see them. Maybe, maybe this error this isn't right. Maybe the stars aren't aligned right here or some other foolishness. You shall see only a fraction of them and shall not see them all. I don't want you looking and getting all impressed By all the people. I'll just show you a little piece. Then curse me for them. Curse them for me from there. And he took him to the field of Zophim. That word Zophim means watchers. So probably like a really high place where you could watch out, right? To the top of Pisgah and built seven altars, offered a bull and a ram on each altar. Balaam said to Balak, stand here beside your burnt offering while I meet the Lord over there. And the Lord met Balaam and put a word in his mouth and said, return to Balak and thus shall you speak. And he came to him, and behold, he was standing beside his burnt offering and the princes of Moab with him. And Balak said to him, What has the Lord spoken? And Balaam took up his discourse and said, Rise, Balak, and hear. Give ear to me, O son of Zippor." And Balak goes, All right, this is it. This is it. Verse 19, God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, And he will not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? Behold, I received a command to bless. And Balak groaned. He has blessed and I cannot revoke it. He has not beheld misfortune in Jacob, nor has he seen trouble in Israel. The Lord their God is with them and the shout of a king is among them. God brings them out of Egypt and is for them like the horns of the wild ox. For there is no enchantment against Jacob, no divination against Israel, my powers are useless, he's saying. Now it shall be said of Jacob and of Israel, what has God wrought? Behold, a people. As a lioness, it rises up and as a lion, it lifts itself. It does not lie down until it has devoured the prey and drunk the blood of the slain. And Balak said to Balaam, do not curse them at all and do not bless them at all. He's like, if you, if you can't curse them, at least shut up, man. But Balaam answered Balak, did I not tell you all that the Lord says that I must do? And Balak said to Balaam, come now, I'll take you to another place. Perhaps it will please God that you may curse them for me from there. It's like green eggs and ham, right? Could you, would you want to train? <laughs> so Balak took Balaam to the top of Peor, which overlooks the desert, right? Don't even look at him this time. And Balaam said to Balak, build for me here seven altars, prepare for me seven bulls and seven rams. And Balak did as Balaam had said, and offered a bull and a ram on each altar. I, it's so funny. He's, let's just try a different spot. Hey, maybe this, this spot just is too holy. Let's try, and, is, is it a little better over here? Isn't it, isn't it great that we don't have to worry about things like that anymore? That it's, even the temple, as great as it was, the Lord was always moving us to the place where he's like, listen, you guys don't need to be in a special place to hear me. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. So he takes him uh, from the heights or from the high places of Baal to Zophim, which means watchers. So maybe not a specifically religious place. Maybe it was like a military outpost or something. And he says, okay, last time he saw all of Israel and he was so, wow, look at how great they are. He says, this place, you can only see a little piece. So maybe he will trick God into thinking that they're not as tough as they already are. Again, foolishness. God is not like these other gods they had messed with. Same ritual as before. Seven altars, seven rams, seven bulls. And once again, he returns with the word of the Lord. And again, from verses 18 through 24, we have a poetic discourse. I don't know how long Balaam was gone. I mean, it could be that he was composing this, that most of the prophets in our Old Testament spoke in that poetic way. And let's break this one down too. First thing He asserts a propositional truth about God's honesty. There are some people that tell you there is no such thing as the Bible just telling us things about God. It's all in story. Well, look, what does it say right there? God is not a man that he should lie. God doesn't lie. God doesn't lie. Titus chapter 1 verse 2 will make reference to this when it says God who cannot lie. Or I think a better translation might be God who does not lie. Sin is outside of God. It's not a matter of ability. It says, therefore, because God is honest and will not change his mind and has already promised to bless Israel, there's not a thing I can do about it. I can't change this. It's like the perfect, holy, sanctified version of the laws of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be broken. I cannot revoke this. So, oracle one was, I cannot curse them. Oracle two is, and I can't undo the blessing that's already on them. There's nothing I can do about this. So, that's the first thing. God is honest. And he's not going to break his word. The second, he explains how God is with Israel, which is the mark of their blessing. Right? He says, the Lord, their God, verse 21, is with them. That's what makes all the difference. He's their king, he calls him, who led them out of Egypt. That's why he's in verse 23. There's no enchantment. There's no definition that's going to work against Israel because the holy, true, and living God, the almighty is there. We've talked about this in, in the book of Daniel recently, that this, this term almighty, Shaddai, is the Hebrew word, uh, it, it, it's likely, and this is, this is some work that I've done, and I think this is, this is true, that all these pantheons that these people worshipped, right, whether it's Hinduism, whether it's Greek mythology, Norse mythology, Moabite mythology, they believed that they were worshipping the lesser gods that had overthrown the big god. And that kind of sort of lines up within what we know about Satan's rebellion, doesn't it? Although they have the good guys and the bad guys mixed up. So when they say Shaddai, when they say God Almighty, what they mean is the big God. The one that's above all our petty gods that we worship. Kind of like when Paul showed up in Athens and said, I declare to you the unknown God. Who created the heavens and the earth. They believed in petty gods that lived in the world, but they, you know, what the Greeks had the, the gods, and then they had the Titans, and behind that they had the, the great great gods that were dead at this point. You know, Satan's been lying that God is dead from the very beginning, it seems, but Almighty God is there. So nobody's able to touch what he's done. He says they're gonna look at, at Israel and they're not gonna say, wow. The blessings of Balaam really did it. Or, man, if it wasn't for the curses of Balaam, they're going to look at them and say, God did that. So first, God is honest. Second, God is with them. And the third thing, he blesses them again. He compares them to lions that are going to get up and devour their enemies and and drink the blood, which is the exact opposite of what Moab wanted because they had just beat up the big bad guy, Og. Remember Og? the guy that had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot and had an iron bed frame he was one of the, the later generation of nephilim and they just they just wiped him out and so now he says hey go and do something about these people so that I don't have to fight them he says well they're they're, they're like lions you know drinking blood and devouring their enemies he's like no stop don't do that Genesis 49.9, actually, Jacob, when he blessed his children, had compared Judah in terms like this to being a lion that will rouse itself. That's why Jesus later is called the lion of the tribe of Judah. Old Testament reference. Since we're talking about blessing, it is so important for us to remember that blessing is not magic. People think, they, they say, if you pray this prayer this way, God has to bless you. Oh, man, I really don't like language like that. Because you're you're, you're not not doing things to God. You're not going to come at God and say, Aha, even if if you call it prayer, or God can't resist such and such. Now, if by that you mean, let's boldly approach the throne of grace, as Jesus told us to, that's one thing. But if you think that you somehow got God in a corner, and you're going to make him do what you want, no way. (laughs) That's not how it works with God. This is not magic. It's not enchantment, nor is it science, by the way. Some people treat God like a science equation. Well, if you do this and you say that, then therefore God will do... Hey, y'all, God is a person. He, he is a person. He is actually persons. The Holy Spirit dwells within you. The Son intercedes for you. And the Father loves you with an everlasting love. Talk to Him. That's where blessing comes from. It's, it's given out by God. He is the cause of all true blessing. That's why, that's why you ought to be staying far away, just real briefly, far away from anything that, that even sniffs of, of real magic. I'm talking about astrology and horoscopes and palm readers and spells and, and potions and even some kinds of yoga get into this stuff. Just stay away from all of that. Anything that I'm going to manipulate the universe around me. There's even certain like positive thinking self-help books that get into this stuff. You stay away from that. You've got your father in heaven that loves you and takes good care of you. That's the one you talk to. But not only is God the cause of all blessing, God is the substance of all blessing. Israel was not just blessed because God had blessed them. They were blessed because God was with them. God, in a very real sense, was the blessing of Israel. Remember when God told Moses after the golden calf episode? He's like, look, I'll still give you the promised land. I don't break my word. But you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to send an angel with you. I can't go with you. Because if I go with you, I'm going to be killing you guys left and right. Because you're a bunch of sinners, and I know what you're like. And remember Moses fasted and prayed and said, if you're not going, we're not going. We're going to stay right here at this mountain unless you go with us. And then that's when the Lord said yes. And that's when Moses said, show me your glory, right? That's, we studied that story. God is the blessing of Israel. That's part of the promise he made to Abraham in Genesis 17, 7, when they were cutting the covenant together. God told Abraham, I will be your God and the God of your children forever. In Deuteronomy 29, 13, when Moses renews the covenant, he's going to say the same thing. Are you really ready for God to be your God? Because you're not going to be able to shake him off that easy, or ever. Isaiah 41, verse 10, God comforts the children of Israel by telling them, hey, I'm your God, just like I was Abraham's God. I'm your God. And the same thing for us. If we want blessing, but we don't want the blesser, if we want God's gifts, but we don't want God himself, then our blessing is just going to be fleeting. I mean, God causes it to rain on the just and on the unjust. Like, things, good things are going to happen to everybody eventually, but God is the true blessing. You can even track it through Israel's life. When they were serving God, they were blessed and they were unstoppable. But when they turned away from God and they were chasing after other gods, they got wiped out. They got judged. God would always bring them back because, remember, they're his unique, special people. But when they were not serving the Lord, things didn't go well. And the same is true for us. Ephesians 1 verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Christ and God through Christ has given us every spiritual blessing. That's where blessing is to be found. John 17, 3, Jesus said, This is eternal life, that they know you and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That's the ultimate blessing, is to be with God and enjoy his presence forever. That's why blessing is for those who are all in, man. It's it's such a shame. You can watch this happen where somebody starts distancing themselves from the Lord you know, they're not going to church like they used to. They're not studying the word like they used to. They're not praying like they used to. And you have conversations with them, and you're worried about them. You start to warn them. Like, I haven't seen you in a round. What's going on? You haven't been here. Oh, yeah, I know. Just stuff going on. And it's, you're like, you're not too busy. You're just not coming. You're not being here. You're not taking the time to discipline yourself. Or maybe they don't even leave the congregation, but you know that their spiritual life is just falling to pieces. And then what starts to happen, they now are no longer living according to God's wisdom, so things start to go poorly, and not only that, but God begins to remove his hand of blessing, which is what he does, and things start to go bad, and they blame God, that God did this to me. Therefore, I'm leaving God, even though you weren't walking with God when all of this happened to you. I've heard so many so-called skeptics and atheists that say, well, I tried Christianity and it didn't work for me, and you talk to them, and like you didn't, you didn't try anything. You never encountered the living God. You never really believed. You just went to church a few times. That's not the same thing, brothers and sisters. If we're going to live life like practical atheists, I believe in God, but I live every day as if he wasn't real. Or theological skeptics like, yeah, I believe in God, but I don't know about all of that. How dare we call upon God to bless us? Oh, bless me, Lord. Bless me, Lord. And then you hear the Lord tell you to do something. I don't know if, I, if I'm going to do that. I'm not that spiritual. I'm not that religious. Well, you better be. Because Jesus said it is those who have been crucified with him who will live again with him. Jesus said it is a hard and narrow road that leads to life. And there are few that find it. We, even in the church, when we cry out for revival, a lot of times what we mean by that is culture has changed and I don't like it. And I want things back the way they were. That's not the right attitude for a revival. The Lord isn't going to bless that. Sometimes people feel like church has just gotten boring lately. And I want there to be a revival so that it will be exciting around here again. Or they say things like, well, not enough people are coming to the church. It's kind of dying. But, you know, a revival will be a good shot in the arm and make our ministry really blow up and grow. That's not what revival is for. Will those things happen during revival? Yes, but they are incidental. And very often, the opposite will happen. Churches, a lot of churches shrivel up and die when revival comes, because there's no substance to it anymore. God's doing a new thing. He's pouring out new wine, and the old wineskins burst open. Say, so, let's have a revival so we can go back to the way things were. Man, that's what the Pharisees wanted with Jesus. Let's get the Messiah here. He'll show these Romans what, what. And Jesus said, I'm doing a new thing, and y'all can't even handle it. Your theology is more correct than these prostitutes over here, but they're open to anything that I'm ready to do. So they're the ones that are going to receive it. Yeah. Or, oh, church, this isn't what it used to be. Well, who cares? Yeah. Who cares? We're doing this out of obedience. It's not for you. And you know what revival always begins with anyway? Read the stories of revivals. The early days are not pleasant. Pleasant. It starts with people weeping and crying out to God because there's two things. Number one, they are aware of the glory and the honor and the majesty of God in ways they never have been before. They're humbled like Isaiah, and the second thing, also like Isaiah, they take a good look at themselves and say, woe is me, for I am undone. Weeping before the Lord, crying out before the God, afraid to move, afraid to get up, to even lift their eyes to heaven. That's what Jesus said a real prayer was like. Do you remember that? The the tax collector that beat his breast and said, Lord, have mercy to me, a sinner. That's revival, friends. And yes, the joy follows hard on the heels of that. But what God does is he breaks off that hard outer shell first. Are you ready for that? Are you ready? Would you want to be broken? Are you ready for God to start something right now, tonight, that will lead to us praying in this room till two or three in the morning? And y'all showing up tomorrow afternoon, banging on the door, say, Tyler, can we please have church again? I got to pray. And then, like, extending out for days and days and days and days. That's revival. More often than not, people get put off by the inconvenience of that more than anything else. I got stuff to do. I got a job. I got work. Well, then you're not going to see that. Leonard Ravenhill very famously said, revival tarries because we are content to live without it when we want nothing other than the Lord Jesus Christ, that's when the Holy Spirit begins to be poured out. Reorientation towards the living God. I, I, I th- want to, oh, who was this? I want to say this was, uh, I forget his last name, Evan something during the Welsh revival. He used to get up there and he used to, to preach during these meetings. And When they would pray, people would be weeping and crying out before the Lord and confessing their sins out loud in public. And he would just be up there and he'd be leaning over the pulpit and praying, lower, Lord, lower, Lord, lower, Lord. He said, take us lower, bring us down, let us forget ourselves, bring us down. And they would talk about the one thing that would quench one of those meetings is when someone would stand up and try to make a spectacle out of themselves. The Lord is the most important thing. He is not only the blesser, he is the blessing. And this is what Balaam recognizes when he sees Israel. Some of y'all need to, to search your heart. Am I ready for God just to break in? No schedule, no time? Sometimes people see, well, the church needs to have no schedule. What they mean by that is, I think the services are too short. When it, really what it means is that the Holy Spirit were to come down and lead us onto a 40-day meeting, We're up for it, Jesus. Well, Balak sees this, and he panics, and he says, if you're not going to curse them, at least don't bless them. At least just say nothing, because he believed in this. And he should have. The Lord is speaking through Balaam. So he takes him one more third place, where you can't see Israel at all, like that's going to make a difference. Look out to the wilderness, and they go through the same rituals And in chapter 24, things are a little different. Read this with me. When Balaam saw that it pleased the Lord to bless Israel, finally got it, right? (laughs) Finally got it. Something you you learn from those that are in these these pagan, heathen cultures, how the gods are capricious, man. They'll change their minds at a moment's notice. Again, if you've read some of your classics, the Odyssey, the Iliad, I mean, the gods just kind of do what they want. Changes his mind all the time. But he realizes that the Lord is not like that. So he did not go at other times to look for omens, birds in the sky, the divining from tea leaves, divining from the, the kidneys and the liver of the animals, but instead set his face toward the wilderness. And Balaam lifted up his eyes and saw Israel camping tribe by tribe. The implication being he turned around and looked back at them. And the Spirit of God came upon him. That's different. Previously, the Lord gave him a word. Now the Spirit of God has come upon him. And he took up his discourse and said, The oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, the oracle of the man whose eye is opened. Implication being, I was a seer before this, but now I'm seeing like I never saw before. This is different. This is not like my little rituals. This is the living God speaking to me. Verse four, the oracle of him who hears the words of God, who sees the vision of the Almighty falling down with his eyes uncovered. Most people believe that that's that's supposed to be referring to some kind of ecstatic trance that he falls into, similar to Peter on the roof of Cornelius' house, or Daniel or Ezekiel would would have those experiences. And this is what he says, verse five, how lovely are your tents, O Jacob, O Jacob. Your encampments, O Israel, like palm groves that stretch afar, like gardens beside a river, like aloes that the Lord has planted, like cedar trees beside the waters. Water shall flow from his buckets, and his seed shall be in many waters. His king shall be higher than Agag, and his kingdom shall be exalted. God brings him out of Egypt, and is for him like the horns of the wild ox. He shall eat up the nations, his adversaries, and shall break their bones in pieces and pierce them through with his arrows. He crouched. He lay down like a lion and like a lioness, who will rouse him up? Right? If you see a sleeping lioness, you are going to wake that thing up? Blessed are those who bless you and cursed are those who curse you. And Balak's anger was kindled against Balaam and he struck his hands together. And Balak said to Balaam, I called you to curse my enemies, striking his hands, right? And behold, you have blessed them these three times. Therefore, now flee to your own place. I said I will certainly honor you, but the Lord has held you back from honor. Translation, I ain't paying for this. And Balaam said to Balak, Did I not tell your messengers whom you sent to me, if Balaam should give me his house full of silver and gold, I would not be able to go beyond the word of the Lord to do either good or bad of my own will? What the Lord speaks, that will I speak? And now, behold, I am going to my people. Come, I will let you know what this people will do to your people in the latter days. And we'll get to that in just a second. But this time, man, Balaam is not divining. He's not looking for omens. He's not going through his usual thing. He recognizes like the witch at Endor. Remember that with Saul and Samuel? she recognized when Samuel rose up, this is different, man. This is not like what's happened before. Like the sons of Sceva, he used to cast out demons. When they started casting out a demon in the name of Jesus and Paul, the demon said, oh, I know Jesus and I know Paul, but who do you think you are to tell me what to do? And the demon beat them half to death and stripped them naked. When you're interacting with the true and living God, it's different, man. That's why when Satanists or magicians, like well, we were able to be together. We levitated a table off the floor. Well, bully for you! My God rose from the dead and raised other people from the dead and parted the Red Sea. What else you got? It's different when it's the Lord and the Spirit of God comes upon him. This is the kind of thing that Joel was prophesying about in Joel too. God was saying, "Listen, this thing that I've done, few and far between, with different people for different instances." I'm going to do with all my people. And they'll prophesy. This is to help us understand. And and even things, like I said, like ecstatic trances. That word ecstatic is found in 1 Corinthians 14. That's found in your scriptures. It's not something we seek and try to make happen, but in special occasions, the Lord will do it. He is having a remarkable experience with the living God and giving a true prophecy. First thing, he did, I mean, you saw it. He describes himself, I have open eyes. For the first time, I'm hearing the voice of El Shaddai, God the Almighty. Second thing, he praises Israel's encampments. And remember, he's looking at the wilderness, but he compares them to an oasis. He's like, even though you're in the wilderness, when you're there, it's like, it's like gardens planted by the streams. And he says that the Lord is like the horns of a wild ox, Many people think that that wild ox is a reference to something called an oryx. Do you know what this was? It's an extinct kind of of bull that was alive in Europe for a long time. It was like six feet tall at the shoulder and its horns were just enormous. And they were hunted to extinction in the 1600s. Huge, big, strong thing. And horns in the Bible are symbols of power, right? We've been talking about that in Daniel. So that's what the Lord is like. He predicts prosperity and military victory. Especially against Agag. Agag was the throne name of the king of the Amalekites. First Samuel 15, Samuel is going to hack the last Agag to pieces before the Lord. It's one of my favorite Bible verses as a kid. 1 Samuel 15, he says, As your sword has made women childless, so now your mother will be childless. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord. Justice. Be careful how often you call out for justice, man. It's a hard thing. He says that they'll devour the nations that cannot stand against them. And fourth, he affirms one more time at the end that Israel is blessed by God. He's bound to bless them. Blessed are those who bless you. Cursed are those who curse you. That's what God said to Abraham in Genesis twelve three. Those who bless you, I will bless. And those who curse you, I will curse. That remains in effect. The Lord does not revoke his promises and his blessings for people. We're told in the Bible to pray for the peace of Jerusalem and to love his people. That although they are our doctrinal and evangelical enemies of the cross, they are God's beloved. And we ought to be praying for them and loving them and evangelizing them. Because Israel was the people of God, they had a destiny. Right now, they're just camped in the wilderness. But they have a destiny to become a great, mighty nation. And this would come true during Israel's monarchy. Like David would smash all these countries. Saul defeated the Amalekites. Solomon would would own the entirety of the promised land. But it's, it's more than that. It's a perpetual blessing. Even though today we are living in days where according to several passages of scripture, Israel has been exiled from their land, only recently brought back, partially blinded to the gospel, there is a promise of redemption. Amos chapter 9 talks about in the last days, God will restore Israel to their land, never to be driven out again. Romans eleven twenty five, 25, Paul says, a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. When God's done his work with the nations, he's turning back to his nation. And Luke 13, 35, Jesus said, you will Your house is left to you desolate until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The thing that God is waiting for is Israel to repent for the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And Zechariah tells us it's going to take a special dispensation of the Holy Spirit in order for that to happen. But the point is, they have a destiny that will not be shaken. And in the same way, if you are in Christ Jesus, we're not just blessed in the here and now, we have a destiny. Jesus said in John 14... The Upper Room Discourse. Let not your hearts be troubled. Don't you love that? It's kind of like permission. Don't let your heart be troubled. Hey, no, 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 we're not doing this. Don't give your heart permission to be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. So much for that Jesus didn't claim to be God thing, huh? Believe in God. Believe also in me. If I said that, you'd string me up. In my Father's house, he says, are many rooms. If it were not so, what I've told you, that I go to prepare a place for you. God doesn't lie. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself that where I am you may be also. That's the rapture, Christians. We do not need to worry about the future if we are on, in Jesus. Our destiny is certain like their destiny was certain. And that perspective changes everything. It circles back to I'm going to walk in God's ways. I'm going to worship the true and living God because he's, he's fixed everything. You cannot separate the destiny from the responsibility of obedience. And if we want to stand apart from the other sinners, if we want to be found in Christ on those last days, it means you've got to stand apart now. Jesus said in Mark eight thirty-eight that if you're ashamed of me and of my word among this crooked generation, I'm going to be ashamed of you before my Father and the holy angels. We've somehow swallowed it. And I think, you know what? I'll just say this. Christian comedians are doing a really bad job of undermining this. We are supposed to be separate. We're supposed to be different. We're supposed to be a little weird. We're supposed to not quite get what the world does. Because we are separate. We're not of this world. We're sojourners. We're exiles. We've been brought from death to life. They think we're weird, but we know that they're dead. They're blind. We have the truth. And if we're to say, oh, I don't want to be so separate and so weird, then Jesus is like, you're ashamed of me and yet you're going to claim my salvation? I don't think so. We are part of a grand, epic story that everybody else doesn't even know is happening right now. Don't let their perspective influence you. They're wrong. They're totally wrong. Blessed are those who bless you and cursed are those who curse you. And Balak is so mad, he refuses to pay the guy. And Balaam's like, oh, well, hold on now. I, we, I told you this up front. This happened to me when I was working for, or got junk when we were going around. I would tell people up front, I'm not going to be able to do such and such. And okay, yeah, that's fine. And you go ahead and then you say, all right. Well, you didn't do this. I, I told you I couldn't do that. But I didn't do what Balaam did, which is, all right, fine. You want to curse? You got a curse. Verse 15 all right, fine, pal. I got one more thing for you. He took up his discourse and said, The oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, the oracle of the man whose eye is opened, the oracle of him who hears the words of God and knows the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty falling down with his eyes uncovered. This is a verse for you to underline. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. We say, Who? A star shall come out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheph. Edom shall be dispossessed. Seir also, his enemies shall be dispossessed. Israel is doing valiantly and one from Jacob shall exercise dominion and destroy the survivors of cities. So again, naming himself, I'm the hearer, I'm the seer of the words of God. And he is. He's speaking under the influence of the Holy Spirit now. And in verse 17, he gives one of the most significant messianic prophecies in all of Scripture. Let's break this down. There's three pieces. First of all, he says, Not yet. With all of this heavenly vision I'm being given, I can see someone coming, but not yet. This is very common. This is a very, the, the trend today is to say the prophets spoke about their day and nothing more. But the Bible tells us that's not the case. 1 Peter 1 verses 10 through 12 tells us that the prophets inquired to know when. Because God was revealing stuff to them and they didn't know when or what it would look like. God only gave them pieces. So not yet. But number two, a star and a scepter. This was a symbol of a great king. In fact, stars in the Bible were symbols of divinity. They were symbols of things that were in the heavens, which is just one indication among many of why we we see that the divinity of Christ was foretold in the Old Testament. And a scepter, of course, right? It's 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 something a king holds. And this is made to Israel a people that had no king yet. But a king is going to come. And number three, victory. He prophesied the end of Moab. Going to crush your forehead, King Balak. He also mentions Sheth. We're not entirely sure who Sheth is. It could be that it's, it's not supposed to be the letter Sheen, but it's supposed to be the letter Sin in Hebrew, in which case it would be Seth, meaning all the people of the world, the descendants of Seth. Or it could be this is just a country that did get broken down, and we just don't know which one it was. Edom, we know Edom, right? Edom was the descendants of Esau. Seir was his capital. And uh, it's important because these are the countries that had spurned Israel in their early days. Moab had tried to curse them. Edom had told them, you try to come through our land and we're going to fight you. And so Balaam is prophesying they're going to get struck down by these very people that they spurned. Now, Israel's kings would win great victories, but they were mere precursors of the true king. The Bible will even use the phrase Messiah to describe certain men of, of David's house, but they are all forerunners of the capital M Messiah, which is our Lord Jesus Christ. In the fullness of time. So he says not yet. Galatians 4.4 4 talks about the fullness of time. When yet finally came, a baby was born in Bethlehem. And how did the wise men, the other people of Balaam's profession, the magi, similar to the word magician, right? You pick up on that. How did they know that the baby was born? Y'all know this. It's a Christmas story. The star. They saw the star. They came to Herod and they said, we've seen his star. And that is a reference back to Numbers chapter 24. That a star will rise out of Jacob. That was Jesus Christ, the Son of God and the Son of Man. He died on the cross and rose from the dead to make atonement for sin. And he's going to return in glory to establish an everlasting kingdom, to tread the winepress of the wrath of God Almighty, to rule with a rod of iron, Revelation 19 says. And his victory will mean victory for Israel. That is inescapable Bible prophecy that Jesus' return will be to rescue the Hebrews from the domination of the Antichrist. He will reign from Jerusalem as has been foretold. And it will be the end of all the wicked nations that hate them. And in the, actually at the end of the Bible, Revelation 22, verse 16 The Lord says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and descendant of David, the bright morning star. Another reference at the end of your Bible to the star that would rise out of Jacob. Now, of course, Satan, who is a usurper, he likes to take the name morning star for himself. That's what Lucifer means. Lucifer was one of the gods of, of Greece who was the god of the morning star. Lucifer means light bearer. That's why they called the morning star, right? Bringing the light with him. And Satan said, oh, no, I'm the morning star. And at the end of the Bible, Jesus goes, we'll see. We'll see who the real morning star is. Make no mistake about it. Jesus is a king. He's a king. Every knee will bow before him. Philippians 2.10. Knees will bow before Jesus. And this is the ultimate truth that we must know. If we want to be blessed, you've got to know that Jesus Christ is Lord. Is he your friend? Yes. Is he your brother? Yes. Is he your savior? Yes. But he is also your king. You bow the knee before the king. You don't talk to the king like he's just anybody. We know we have access to Christ, but we cannot let our own cultural sensibility about rank And aristocracy push us to think that Jesus is anything other than what he is. I think we receive that teaching about access to God a little too easily, if that can even be said. We need to be reminded that he's the Lord of lords. If you refuse to bow the knee to Jesus, you are outside of his grace and you are outside of his blessing. You are going to hell. Well, I think Jesus and I could work something out. Yeah, you get on your knees, confess him as Lord, and offer him up your life as a living sacrifice. I thought we were saved by faith. Yeah, that's what faith is. I believe everything that Jesus said is true. I bow the knee. I repent. I leave behind the old life. I give it to him and say, what would you have me do? Christianity, friends, is not to be social glue. Well, we need religion to have have a good country. Some of our founding fathers who had a more utilitarian view of religion used to say things like that. Thomas Jefferson is like, I don't believe in this stuff myself, but you know, the poor people, they kind of need this to keep them in line. It's kind of a sick thing to say, isn't it? But the thing is, we're all saying it now. People say, oh man, things are going crazy. People are transgender, their kids, and people are, are doing all this crazy stuff. We, we, we need some religion. I say, okay, yeah, believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, I don't don't know about all that. I mean, we know it's not true, but we still need it. Can I just say this for anybody that might be watching or listening or doubting this? You cannot have the benefits of the gospel without believing the gospel. You cannot set up laws that look like the gospel without believing it. So all these people that want to try to tell the rest of us peasants, go back to church, you need it, but want to neglect it for themselves, woe unto you. God will not be used by anybody. It's also not just to be good morals for families. I've got to get the kids to church because I don't want them growing up and believing in some weird thing that scares me a little bit. So send them to church, let them learn not to lie, and let them learn not to, to punch other kids in the face. That, that's good. And not really for me, but it's good for them. That's not what this is. That is not what this is. Is what you think this is, you're going to get upset when you start seeing actual sinners come through the door and get radically saved. Because they'll ruin your vision of what your home for your kids is going to be. Nothing like that. This is the kingdom of God. Think on that word, kingdom. As in the place where the king rules. God is an absolute monarch. I want to talk about the divine right of kings. He has the divine right to rule over you, not just to give you some good ideas and some good suggestions, to rule over your life. And if you say, I'm not down with that, then you're not saved. I don't know what somebody told you when you first came in. That's what this is. He is the king. He is the morning star. There is no dawn. There is no light in your life without him. You bow the knee or you perish Oh, what, Jesus is some kind of conqueror? Yes, exactly that. Exactly that. Read Revelation 19 if you've never read it before. We don't have time tonight. But when that morning star rises and takes his scepter in his hand, you best be on his side. And you have the opportunity today to come to him, bow the knee and have your name written in his book of life. And then he will become so much more to you than just a king. But until that day comes, he is your enemy. Although he is offering you peace. And then he has three short oracles that he gives about the nations. It rounds it off and it gives us an even seven. Then he looked on Amalek. Took up his discourse and said, Amalek was the first among the nations. But its end is utter destruction. And he looked on the Kenite and took up his discourse and said, Enduring is your dwelling place and your nest is set in the rock. Nevertheless, Cain, that was their capital, shall be burned when Asher takes you away captive. And he took up his discourse and said, Alas, who shall live when God does this? God's given him visions of the future here. But ships shall come from Kittim and shall afflict Asher and Eber, and he too shall come to utter destruction. Then Balaam rose and went back to his place, and Balak also went his way. Three more oracles. First is Amalek. The Amalekites have been harassing Israel in the wilderness. They would be destroyed by Israel's first king, although the job would not be completed until the book of Esther when Haman and his family were finally executed. The second are the Kenites. Now, the Kenites were uh, like the Midianites, the families of Jethro. And they had these rocky dwellings that were very difficult for infantry to take. He said, but it's not going to protect you when I send Asher your way. Now, that Asher is either a reference to Assyria that's the reference, Ashur was the capital city. Or Abraham also had uh, an, a descendant whose name was Asher through his wife Keturah. And it could be that that's the tribe they're speaking about. And the third one is very significant in verse 23 and 24. Ketim, this is a Hebrew reference to Cyprus, that ships will come and afflict Asher and Aber. These are smaller tribes. This is a reference to the coming of the Philistines. The Philistines were, were, they were of, of, I don't want to say Greek culture, but they were from that same, that same cultural world. That's why when we read about them, they have city-states, and they're, they're fighting with these certain weapons and all that. And they afflicted that part of the world, but uh, you know, David is going to take good care of those Philistines. They'd be destroyed too. The point is that every other nation is fleeting and forgotten, if they have not, the Lord. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the psalmist said. And that's the destiny that awaits not just every nation, but every individual if you ignore Christ, crushed and forgotten. And so Balaam separates from Balak. We have not seen the last of Balaam. He's, he's not going to make any money in Moab. We're going to see that he's going to go to Midian and stir up some trouble. But let's wrap this up here. We all want blessings. We all want a destiny. And perhaps even we're willing to worship the true God. But the question, guys, are you willing to bow It's not very American to bow, is it? And listen, in the flesh, I'm down with that. But don't think you can do that same thing with Jesus. If you will not come to Christ that you may be saved, there's only loss waiting for you. It doesn't matter how up things are right now. But if you have bowed the knee to the Son of the living God, there are great blessings, true knowledge of the truth, and a holy destiny waiting for you. God is going to keep his covenant with Israel And because he is, we can trust him to keep the covenant he's made with us, the new covenant. For Romans 11.29 says, the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. They're without repentance. God doesn't change his mind. We just read it tonight. We are many things as Christians. So let's make sure that subject of the king of kings is part of that list.